0: Last Sunday, hundreds of American churches closed their doors to congregants, many of whom watched via live stream. It may be like this for weeks. That same day, the Center for Disease Control urged Americans not to congregate in groups larger than 50. On Monday, the state where Tim and I live, Illinois, went so far as to ban these gatherings. These types of restrictions will have significant repercussions for many churches, where groups of 50 or larger regularly gather on a weekly basis, especially with Easter just weeks away. As church leaders and pastors wrestle with these restrictions, as well navigating things like weddings and funerals, there's a larger question we wanted to explore. What type of opportunity does a pandemic like this allow Christians to be remembered for? To explore this question, we wanted to go back to early church history, to the deadly 13-year-long plague of Cyprian. This week on the show, we'll discuss how Christians responded counterculturally to the disease and how the church changed their community's approach to health care. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes, discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today.
1: And I'm Tim Dalrymple, the president and CEO of Christianity Today.
0: All right, Tim, you and I are in a recording studio today. We are sitting at the furthest edges of the room, away from each other.
1: (laughs) That's right. We're in opposite corners at the moment, doing our best to practice social distancing, even in a fairly small audio recording studio.
0: Absolutely. I would love to just hear (laughs) your gut check. Maybe you can say how you did church on Sunday and how you've been wrestling through all this
1: stuff. Well, you know, my wife... Joyce recently completed her MDiv, her seminary education, and so she has begun doing work in church ministry. And this was the really the first time that she had been invited to deliver a sermon. So she worked very hard preparing an excellent sermon. And then, of course, all all of the plans changed in the few days prior to the church service. So her first sermon was delivered to, you know, to a live stream. And or to an audience of no one she could see, I suppose. There were actually, you know, there were a few people because they they did not entirely shut the doors. They okay. allowed people, if they really wanted to, to come in. That may be different this coming Sunday. Yeah, so that's that's how I, I went to support her, and, and uh, that's how we attended church this last Sunday. But my general gut check here is just, you know, like a lot of people, I, I'm sure— I'm just feeling a million different things and my head is spinning and there's so much to learn. There's information coming at us so quickly. You have that unique sort of feeling of living through a historic moment, one that you uh, anticipate that you'll tell later generations about, right? Nothing Uh like this has ever happened in our lifetimes. And of course, you really grieve with people domestically and around the world who are affected very personally, who are seeing the loss of loved ones and so forth. Now, on, on the other hand, I have a fairly robust theology of suffering, and I, I think suffering is—it's in times of suffering that faith becomes faith in many respects, and, and in times of suffering that the witness of Christian faith shines the brightest. So I'm on the lookout for that and looking forward to today's topic of conversation.
0: It was interesting. I, I think I kind of wrote off the idea that a live stream would feel meaningful, I know some churches use Facebook Live, which is kind of a a one-directional way to view church, but my church is small enough that we were able to go on a Zoom call, and I found that actually really nice because we were able to see people's faces, which to me made a, a big difference in terms of just feeling connected to other people. I was also touched that the pastors at my church decided to really change how they did church. So <laughs> my pastor did his did a Mr. Rogers get up. So they had him coming through the door and changing from his jacket to his cardigan and then changing his shoes. And they even had a puppet up there. And I thought actually that was a, like, a pretty good way to kind of just communicate rather than trying to do the exact same thing. They did something a little bit more flexible. And I just found it really kind of affirming. I felt like I, w- I was in many ways with people because I could see them as opposed, again, to just watching something.
1: Yeah. Creativity in the midst of adversity. Absolutely. Um, You know, a a little plug here or project that I've kind of watched for a number of years. Friend of mine is involved with this. And it is a tool that allows for the capture of video and then building content around that video and essentially producing live interaction with even content that's pre-recorded. It's called rally. R-A-L-I. GetRally.com is where you can find it. I would encourage listeners and others who are out there, you know, as you come across resources that may be helpful to the church in this very particular time of need, let's share that. And I think you, Morgan, have been doing fantastic with Christianity Today's social media streams and kind of asking people how they're adapting to the circumstances.
0: People can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. We are at CT Magazine. Tim, it's funny now we're going to go back, obviously, to hundreds of years before video calling was even dreamed up. So who is joining us today to have this conversation?
1: Well, I, I personally am a history enthusiast, and so I'm, I'm very excited for today's conversation. Our guest today is Gary Ferngren. He is a history professor at Oregon State University. His research interests focus on the social history of religion and ancient medicine and the historic relationship between science and religion. Uh, so if you're looking for someone to talk about the Plague of Cyprian, then I don't think you could find anyone better than Dr. Ferngren. Welcome. It's
2: good to be here.
0: Hi, Gary. We're really glad that you could join us. Thank you.
2: Nice to talk halfway across the country.
0: I am also really delighted that we can talk to someone with your level of expertise. We're going to be talking soon about a plague that happened in the third century, but I actually kind of wanted to start with what we see in the book of Acts and going back to the first century. So I'm wondering if we read the book of Acts or any of Paul's or the other apostles' writings, to what extent do we get a sense of the church engaging in maybe a countercultural approach to the way that sick people are usually treated?
2: The countercultural approach comes over time. And you find it in the beginning, actually, in the Gospels and a bit in the book of Acts, but more so as it's developed in the epistles of the New Testament, which were intended by Paul and John and James and other writers to provide the normative teaching to the church. That is how the church ought to act in a variety of circumstances. Acts is an historical book. It uh, describes the period of what we would call the post-apostolic age, which comes after Christ's resurrection and ascension. You don't find a lot of reference to healing in the book of Acts. You find that in that post-apostolic period, there was both miraculous healing in some cases, sometimes healing by natural means, and sometimes no healing at all. There's no single pattern in the New Testament for how Christians should expect to face illness other than the fact that they should act as servants of Jesus Christ, that they should love and show spiritual and even medical concern for other Christians. The suffering of others should elicit sympathy. One doesn't find a single pattern of healing.
1: Gary, let me ask you about what we find in the Gospels. So we'll go back prior to the post-apostolic period, and the stories that we see within the Gospels of, of Jesus addressing physical ailments of different kinds, to what extent were those countercultural, either countercultural to the, the local Jewish culture or countercultural to kind of the broader and prevailing Roman culture?
2: In some respects, the same, in some respects, different. Jesus was always moved by human sympathy. And you see that on a number of cases when he even healed somewhat reluctantly. Uh, you see cases such as in the parable of a Good Samaritan, where the religious leaders of the Jewish community did not act with sympathy. I think that's the number one point, and one that we could take away from Jesus' healing ministry. Everywhere he went, he was asked to heal. And he often did so by working through very long days and into the night, healing large crowds. But it was sympathy for them, and always pointing to their father, and always indicating that suffering was a means by which God could often act to teach them things,
0: I'm curious if you can give us a sense of what the Roman approach to health care was in starting in the first century and kind of continuing on until we get to this plague.
2: There was a multi-layered approach. There were doctors, and they were relatively common, trained in what we would call Greek theoretical medicine that is medicine that was explained in a theoretical fashion, usually the humoral theory by um, Greek writers. There was not just doctors who healed, but there were a whole variety of other healers. There were people who healed through magic, through exorcism, other means as well so one can't say there was a single pattern of healing. The person you went to often depended on the kind of community in which you lived depended on your financial resources. Those who could afford it often went to doctors. Those who couldn't looked for often local healers. Sometimes if you went to one healer and he or she couldn't heal you, you went to someone else. But then that's always been the resort of healing. One approach doesn't help, you go to another. There were a number, take the woman, for example, whom Jesus healed, who touched his garment, and she had been to many doctors and was unhealed. And that must have been a common practice because medicine was much less able to heal in the ancient world than it is today.
0: So I'm really curious when the early church began to grow, were they adopting some of the Jewish norms around cleanliness and treating the sick? Or were they keeping the Roman norms that had been around, or were they inventing new ones?
2: That's a hard question to answer because it had different solutions in different places. But I think you could say that the early Christians did not operate with a Jewish context. The earliest Christians were Jews, but once the gospel was preached outside Jerusalem, even in There were a number of Gentiles. And I would say within a generation, as the Apostle Paul, Peter, and others traveled throughout the Roman Empire, the number of Gentiles overwhelmed the number of Jews in the church, that is, the number of ethnic Jews. And the result is they usually depended on whatever healing they were used to. And throughout the Roman Empire, healing by physicians, by what we would call today allopathic medicine, was pretty common. So, for example, we can't say definitely that Luke, who accompanied the Apostle Paul, was a conventional healer, but my guess was that he was, that he had probably done an apprenticeship in what we would call Greek healing, and that was probably the, the way he did did heal. But we we don't know. The Roman style of healing through physicians who were trained by apprenticeship and who had a theoretical basis for medicine was probably the most conventional means of of healing so that i'm guessing that especially by the end of the first century most christians who looked to a doctor and who could afford to went to a a physician trained in greek medicine
1: so one of the things that we hear and i'd love to know whether you think this is is true we hear number one that it was a not uncommon practice in roman culture to leave unwanted children or children who might have health defects or et cetera exposed in order to allow them to die. Or sometimes this could be practiced with people who were ill and and older and so forth, kind of taking them to to particular places in order to to leave them to die. And that Christians, at least I've, I've heard this with regard to children who were left out and exposed and abandoned, had a different sort of tack on that. Number one, is that accurate? And number two, are there other examples like that where you mentioned the sympathy that's demonstrated by Jesus in the gospel stories? Other other examples of Christians who kind of took up that call in in different ways?
2: I've argued in some of the things I've written that compassion is the distinctively Christian contribution to health care. It's true that in the ancient world, and we'll go back as far as the Greeks of the 5th century, there was no idea that anyone who was born into the world had the right to live. That was not the case. And in fact, in Greece, and we know that it was the case in Roman culture as well, unwanted children were often set out to die. Maybe fewer in Roman culture than in Greek culture, But remember that the Roman Empire was Greek in its culture and language, the eastern half of the empire, and in the Latin West, it was Roman. But the exposure of children was the normal means to exercise population control. Birth control was known, but it was pretty iffy. Since it wasn't guaranteed that you could prevent unwanted children from being born, children were often exposed. The idea of a right to life, the idea that children had an inherent quality of life or quality of sacredness that allowed them to live simply did not exist in the ancient world until the Christians introduced it. I think it made over time a difference as Christian values penetrated the culture of the Roman Empire.
0: I would like to kind of get a sense of what was going on in the Roman Empire around the time that this plague breaks out.
2: The plague of Cyprian broke out in the the middle of the 3rd century. We call it the Plague of Cyprian because Cyprian was the Bishop of Carthage. He was a very influential person. We have actually a number of his writings. The, The large cities of the Roman Empire attracted his bishops. Educated Romans had often been wealthy men who had received the best kind of education in rhetoric or philosophy or whatever. And you can tell that by the way they write. They were educated people. The Romans were used to appointing people like that to high office. Cyprian was in Carthage, and we know that about the middle of the third century, a plague broke out. There were several plagues in the Roman Empire. The two greatest were the one of the second century, brought back by soldiers who had been fighting in the East in Parthia, and in the third century, a second one that broke out and spread to the large cities. They're described by Eusebius in his early church history quite in detail. They carried away a large portion of the citizens of the Roman Empire, especially in the cities. We're told by Eusebius that 5,000 people died a day in Rome because of of the plague similar figures for Carthage and for Alexandria the biggest cities in the most in the Roman empire and in each of those cities it was the christian church that undertook to do what they could because the romans had no no pattern of treating a mass disease they didn't seem to know what to do and therefore they did nothing except plead with the gods to remove what must have been a punishment, what was considered to be a punishment on the Roman society.
0: So there was no organized response is what you're saying?
2: The Romans had no organized response. It was the Christians who really introduced that concept.
0: How? And also
2: why? Well, why is easy, the Roman idea of the amago Dei the image of God, that um, all human beings, Christian, non-Christian, pagan, whatever, are bearers of God's image. And that is something that has a spiritual component and also one that naturally draws our compassion to others. That was the foundation for it. There was nothing like that in Roman Roman cultural or moral values. How did they do it? Well, the Christians were undergoing persecution at the time of Cyprian. Uh, They did until 313 when Constantine gave Christianity the first recognition that other religions and cults had enjoyed. They offered burial to those who were exposed on the streets in times of epidemic plagues. All morality seemed to, conventional morality, respect for even members of your own family, were abandoned because people didn't know what to do. They were overwhelmed by by the sheer suffering. And I think maybe today we can understand some of that. People would often throw bodies out into the streets and they lay unburied. So Christians who had been offering a burial service to their own members began to bury pagans, even those who were outside the church. They began to take care of those who were sick, first in their own family and then in their own church, and finally outside because they had in the first century, already in the book of Acts, established deacons who supplemented the elders, the presbyters, in providing acts of mercy. Deacons were from the beginning, although they're Said in Acts to wait on tables, they very quickly took on the ministry of mercy in the early Christian church, and that became one of the best known ways in which Christians were recognized.
1: I'd love to ask; it's a fairly specific question, so we'll give it a try. And if this is not something that you've looked into, of course, that's fine. But you know, it strikes me as you're talking about plagues, you're talking about the breakdown of social order, you're talking about suffering on a on a massive scale. And it it occurs to me that the other time in which you would have these sorts of experiences, of course, in the midst of war, sieges were fairly common back then. Of course, you know, early in the in the history of the Christian Church, you had the siege of Jerusalem by Titus. The Jerusalem Church had largely fled, as I understand, around sixty six up into the Galilee region, and so they weren't necessarily there so much in seventy. But as the as the church spread into whether that was south and, and west uh, across the North African coast or up into Syria and Anatolia and around to Greece and et cetera, it would have been in a lot of places where there were, where there were battles, and, and often those battles would take the form of sieges. And in the midst of siege, you could have incredible suffering and starvation and disease and, and bodies piling up like you're describing. And Do we know at, at all kind of how Christians comported themselves and whether they were organized in the way that you're describing in the, in the midst of those kinds
2: of circumstances as well? I can't comment on any sieges, and and I don't remember very many cases. There might be some in the Middle Ages. Christians had, after all, left Jerusalem before the fall. Early Christian literature, and even early pagan, that is Greek and Roman literature, focuses on how the Christians acted during plagues. And plagues overwhelm the ancients. From the time of Thucydides, who describes the most famous account of a plague, Plague of Athens, during the... Peloponnesian War in the 5th century, that fascinated and caught the attention of the ancient classical world. You find that the pattern of public behavior was more or less the same. There was no constraint on what you should do to protect others. There was no compassionate response to suffering. From Thucydides on, you find writers appalled by the way in which the sick and the suffering, even including one's own Family were treated. They were ignored because people were taking care of themselves and their families and they didn't know what to do. As far as we know, the Christians were the first people who began an active campaign to take care of sufferers or to bury the dead or to help. We find that it's it's an underlying theme of late Roman imperial history. There's one case where a a presbyter in um, a particular city in the east found that nothing was being done to take care of the sick, or even bury the dead. And so he went to the magistrates of the city and said, Nothing's being done. Will you trust me to take care of the sick? They ordinarily, that was the time when Christians were still persecuted, would have rejected him, but he had established a reputation in the city for the way he acted, so the magistrates entrusted him with taking care of the sick insofar as he could arrange anything. So what he did was to send up set up beds in a stoa in a porch facing the forum, found Christians who would take care of them, and they brought the sick to that area. That was an emergency measure. When the magistrates of the city didn't know what to do, there was one Christian monk who suggested that they give the task to him, and he took care of it.
0: What I find really remarkable about this type of thing is that when you're part of a community deciding to reach out to those in a sacrificial way who are outside of your community, when it can also put your own community at risk is kind of just a contentious thing that happens a lot of times. And so I'm wondering, do we have any evidence that there was some division or infighting that ended up resulting as as we saw some of these Christian leaders decide to take the initiative and take care of the sick in these situations?
2: I don't know of any. I don't know of any cases where some Christians said we ought not to be doing this. And it may reflect passages that I haven't seen. There are some very famous accounts of plagues, and I'll come to one in just a minute. I, I think the compassionate ideal was there, and it was there from the early New Testament. It was there from the teaching of Christ. That if you see suffering, it's an obligation for Christians to do what they can because Christ has placed them in the world to help others. And that became very much a pattern of the early Christian community. And there are some people who talk about that. There are several passages. Some of them I've included in a book of passages on, on religion and medicine. I'll just mention one, and that's the treatise, a short work by Cyprian himself called De Mortalitate, uh, on mortality, in which he apparently wrote it to deliver as a sermon, and it was widely circulated. This was in the third century. It was in Carthage. Cyprian is calling on Christians at the risk of their own health and lives to take care of others. It's very powerful what he says. Christ didn't place you in the the world to enjoy a life of comfort when you see suffering around you, your neighbors, your friends, even those who have been persecuting you. You uh, should help them. That was, as fine a statement as I know, the Christian obligation to care for others. Were there people who denied that? I don't think so. I think that theme was so strong in the early church. I'm sure there were many Christians who thought, well, I'm not going to put my life or that of my family in danger. But of course, we all face that even today.
3: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
0: I saw, Tim, you made a note a couple hours ago about how (laughs) we didn't necessarily understand germs and how they worked at that time. And that potentially, to some extent, this exposure that Christians were having, they were actually ended up transmitting the disease to others.
1: Well, I do wonder about it, at least. So um, Christians are are known for this, and this is something that that Rodney Stark takes up in his book, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, Doctor Fugren, uh, The Triumph of Christianity: The Role That Christians Played in the Midst of Affliction and Caring for People That Nobody Else Would Care For, Right? And in his view, it played a really critical role in the expansion of Christianity, just kind of creating a, a contrast and attracting people who might not have otherwise been interested. So I'd love to know. Number one, do you agree with Doctor Stark on that, or would you frame it differently? And and number two, when I think about you know, <laughs> however well intentioned and I, I think it was compassionate and I think it was heroic and self-sacrificial for Christians to go amongst the the sick, amongst the diseased and the dying, and people struggling with different kinds of plagues. And yet you you do also wonder, you know, where, did they therefore serve as agents of the spread of uh, those diseases, which we would understand now under kind of the germ theory of disease, but which they would not have understood at the time.
2: But I think they would have thought it a poor excuse. And it's probably a poor excuse today. The compassionate model in healthcare is, I think, the very distinctive contribution that Christians have made to health care. And this has been pointed out by a number of people. Henry Sigrist, a Marxist historian who wrote on the culture of health care, says this is the one thing that Christians contributed to healthcare, And I think he's right. And Rodney Stark has picked that theme up and so have I. People are suffering. Do you take that as a reason not to help because you know you might afflict, be afflicted yourself? And I think that is not the approach that Jesus would have us take. The number of hospitals in the Western world, and hospitals are a contribution of Christians since uh, the fourth century, that's a direct outgrowth of Jesus' call to help those who are in need. And I'll just add one more to this. I think the greatest growth of Christianity in populations in the say early Christian period was following the third century when so many Cases were given throughout the Roman Empire of Christians coming in to take care of the sick when no one else would do it. And I think that was noticed and very much appreciated by those who benefited from it.
1: Well, a friend of mine summarized the the thesis of The Triumph of Christianity, that book by uh, Rodney Stark, as Christians outthought the pagan culture and outloved the pagan neighbor. And uh, I find that pretty compelling and certainly something for us to strive for. So I want to come back later to what would it mean for us today because we don't we certainly don't want not come alongside the suffering out of fear for our own safety. However, now that we are equipped with the germ theory of disease, are there ways of exercising compassion without actually spreading the disease and therefore kind of spreading the suffering to to people who might not have been suffering before? We can come back to that in a moment. But I but I think you you gave us a There was a sort of glittering aside there of the uh, role of Christians in the development of hospitals. And so why don't we press on a little bit further past the the Siege of Cyprian and talk about the, the formation of hospitals and the role that Christians played in that.
2: There's been a real interest in the history of hospitals in the last generation. Some very good studies have been made of those. The evidence is overwhelming that the hospital was a specifically Christian institution, lacking in any other culture. There were precursors. There was one precursor called the valetudinarium, which was used by the Romans for two special classes of people, for slaves on large estates, and secondly, for soldiers in the Roman army. And you can see examples of this in Europe. But those were meant only for specific groups of people, and they weren't founded for charitable reasons. It was the Christians who, in the fourth century, believed that there ought to be some way of caring for those who were sick. The person who really gets the reputation as the founder of the hospital movement was Basil, who lived in the fourth century AD, lived in a town in the middle of what is today Turkey, Asia Minor, founded during the widespread epidemic of leprosy, founded the first, what was called Xenodochium, the first hospital. He founded it probably initially for lepers, but he added several different groups for the sick. One for children, because foundlings were still wide widely placed in open places and around the forum, or sometimes in churches, sometimes in the porches of temples. A place for Children place for people who suffered from a variety of different institution i'm sorry different illnesses, one for the poor that was finished his hospital probably about three seventy two and within a hundred years, it had reproduced itself in a sense that Basil's hospital in Cappadocia, in Caesarea, in Turkey, was extended to places all over the Eastern Empire. It grew up in the Greek East, the Greek-speaking eastern part of the Roman Empire, and only slowly, and a generation or two later, spread to the Western Empire. And actually a woman named Fabiola founded the first hospital in Rome at the end of the 4th century.
1: It's fantastic, I think, to note that this tradition of hospitals that really began with Basil of Caesarea and the Greek Fathers, it carries on, right? I mean, so many, even today, so many hospitals are St. Mary's or St. Michael's and, and so I've forth. I've always wondered about that, too. Yeah. And that's
2: because the church founded them. That's um, right.
1: That's right. Especially and, and,
2: and the- and the people who probably deserve the greatest, greatest reputation are monastic orders up until fairly recently.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was, of course, in the Crusader period, the Hospitallers themselves who were formed in part to care for pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. But you, you could talk about the Hotel Dio movement and, and various sorts of organizations today that are monastic or semi, semi-monastic inspired by that in, in order to provide care for the people who are suffering in all different sorts of ways.
2: I should mention, however, that it was mostly for the poor. Hospitals for, were for centuries meant for those who had no place else to go, no place else to go for treatment or even to die. That was the case up until probably the 19th century.
0: I'm wondering if there are a couple other plagues that you feel are worth mentioning in this context, specifically around highlighting the church's involvement with regards to caring for those afflicted by it?
2: There were several. What I'll do is mention not just a specific plague, but another form of medical concern in the ancient world, and that was the group of people who formed a kind of medical corps. There are several of these, and they grew up in the 4th and 5th centuries of the Roman Empire, almost all of them in the Eastern Empire. The most famous were called the Parabolani. They were a group of people who were mostly of lower classes. They were hired by the Patriarch of Alexandria to look, at, look for people on the streets, on the roads, by the baths, because if you were sick and you had no family, you had no place to go. So you lay on the streets, or as we know already from the Gospels, you might lie around a pool and uh, wait for people to come and help you. And you can still see this in some places in the world today, as I have. During the winter, they were really stressed by the cold weather in the uh, fifth century. And we don't know whether it was a plague or not. The patriarch hired people to go pick them up, find a place for them to stay, maybe just some warm place where they would be taken out from the, the cold weather. And that produced similar groups of what shall we say? Ambulances that operated in most of the large cities in the, in the Middle East.
1: Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning, too, you know, we talked about some other hospital movements, but it's, but it's true as well that medical care has been an extremely important part of missionary efforts all over the world.
2: It has. That's um, true. It's been in the 19th century.
1: I was just a few weeks ago in Papua. And I was visiting some villages in the, the mountainous interior region of Papua, where there were missionary families and there were also medical clinics. and And in many cases, those missionaries function in the early going as missionaries, as evangelists, also as Bible translators, also as providers of medical care and knowledge and expertise, and often as educators as well. And over time, as more people come, some of those functions can be taken up in other ways, often by other Christian ministries. But if you are looking to spread the gospel, then... You know, caring for somebody's a sick child is just an extraordinary way to to build a relationship. But I think it's worth noting: not only are they bringing medical technologies, but they're bringing a posture of compassion and often, sometimes, a, a surprising determination to care for those who are on the margins, and that that attracts the attention of the locals and a
2: desire to learn more. It does, and in many societies, has introduced a pattern that didn't exist before. But I should mention, by the way, that. The connection of Christianity with the foundation of hospitals, from Basil's Hospital on to the present time, is a good argument against the view which has been held by a surprising number of people that Christianity was opposed to ordinary medicine. That Christianity preached healing by miraculous means. I don't think that's ever been the case. I think going back to the New Testament period could be argued that because Jesus performed miracles, his followers should as well. But I don't think that was ever a pattern, even in the apostolic church. And it certainly hasn't been since.
0: I was curious about one potential inflection point, and that was mainly around the scientific revolution and some of the medical discoveries that were made in the aftermath of that. Did that have any effect on the relationship between Christianity and medicine. And I don't know, Tim, if you know anything about that either.
2: That's a much more complex issue than the early church. Both Calvin and Luther were strong upholders of ordinary medicine and believed that it was God's gift, that it should be used by everyone. Actually, Luther wrote quite a lot about that particular issue. There was a change at the time of the Reformation in which hospitals which had ordinarily been maintained by monastic movements, were secularized and they were controlled by the cities under the administration of the cities, and there were gains and losses in that. Medicine was taken out of the hands, monastic orders that were often organized as, I would say, the Sisters of Mercy and given to more secular people, and I would say that wasn't a gain. On the other hand, hospitals were spread, they were given good leadership, good support, and the like. Martin Luther wrote surprisingly a lot about medicine and God's blessing of medicine to help other people. The Protestant Reformation did introduce perhaps one element that was of value, and that was the idea that a vocation, which under the Catholic Church had been a call to a divine ministry, priest, nun, or monk, was made as God's calling to any particular trade, from motherhood to a doctor. Many of the Protestant doctors from the 16th, 17th, 18th, even into the 19th century, took medicine as their calling from God, a vocation from God. I think that has mostly fallen out of the Protestant tradition, but maybe not entirely.
1: Yeah, since you invited me uh, to jump in on that as well, Morgan, I I can't think of... Areas in which during the scientific revolution or immediately thereafter where there were really significant tensions between the church and kind of the emerging scientific consensus. I I know there were concerns about dissection of cadavers and that form of studying and learning medical truth, medical facts. And so as you learn more about the inner functioning of the body, I don't think you had quite the same tensions that you did in places like astronomy, for instance, or geology that came a little bit later.
2: No, I don't think that that was the case at all medicine just wasn't a matter of dispute i think at the time of the reformation there were different kinds of medicine Paracelsus introduced more chemical reliance of medicine and that was in dispute but i would say so strong was the compassionate ideal of the christian faith in catholicism protestantism almost every group that no one ever doubted that christians had a, a strong calling from Christ to take care of the suffering. I hope that remains with us today. It should always be the calling of every Christian, not necessarily to go into a medicine field, but to know that we're supposed to be, by Christ's calling, ministers to those in suffering, those who are sick, those who are ill, those who are dying. And in every one of those cases, there's been a very, very strong, compassionate opinion on the part of Christians.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Luther, and it's it's worth noting that we published a piece not too long ago on what Luther had to say about the plague. Calvin was involved in Geneva in the midst of numerous plagues as well. And so going forward from there, of course, you could talk about people like like Florence Nightingale and military medicine, camp medicine, all the way up into the 20th century with people like Mother Teresa, of course, founding a, a whole order dedicated to caring for the uh, for the sick and the dying.
2: Most people don't realize that Cicely Saunders, the founder of hospice, was an evangelical Christian who believed that to found hospices as places to to die for those who had no other place was something that God had placed on her heart. That's not as widely known as it should be. So this idea of compassionate medicine as an outgrowth of Christianity has continued right down to the 20th and 21st centuries.
0: We do have an article on her, so I will post that in the show notes for people that want to read that.
1: The founder of the Red Cross, as well at any number of medical missionary uh, mission organizations today, and I, I'd love to come back. Said earlier that we would come back to this. So, what does it look like for Christians to practice self-sacrificial love and compassion today in the midst of coronavirus? And this is this is something I think a lot of people are wrestling with. They don't want to be a part of. Well, they want to help flatten the curve, and so that that means limiting the number of their social interactions. They don't want to be a part of picking something up and then passing it on to to others, in particular in, in vulnerable populations. On the other hand, they have a desire to, consistent with the tradition of Christian compassion, a desire to do what they can and to serve people who are in need. And Are there lessons you think that we can learn from the history that will... Provide some guidance for us today as we struggle with coronavirus.
2: Well, the first lesson probably is that uh, we're living in normal times. We read about the Black Death, about the Plague of Cyprian, about uh, even the SARS virus or cholera in the 19th century. The cholera epidemic went all over the world. I think the tendency of most of us is to want to cut ourselves off in isolation so that we and our family won't suffer. And I think the people who have made a difference in relieving the suffering of others have not taken that attitude. Where they saw suffering, they went into the midst. And in some cases, they, they gave their lives for that. It's a very famous pattern. It's been widely used to help others. What should we do? Should we, should we isolate ourselves? Should we look after our own interests? And I don't think that's compatible with the gospel.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that's a very much a live discussion right now. What does that, that mean for us today? On on the one hand, I'm a, I'm a big believer in subjecting ourselves to risk <laughs> and being self-sacrificial. I'll, I'll tell you very honestly, I I also don't want to be a part of, of spreading it even more in such a way that introduces the disease to even more people and, and leads to an overwhelmed hospitals. And so I, I'm very keen on figuring out, well, you know, can I Provide childcare for a parent who needs to work, but their child now no longer has a schooling option? Can I help with food? Are there, are there, deliveries that I can make to people who are shut up within quarantine? What are some organizations that I might be able to give to financially? And so maybe we can provide some links for those things. But, uh, you know, I think there's this conversation going on across the American church and and even the broader global church about how can we, uh, what are some creative ways in which we can show love in this particular moment, in this particular set of circumstances? And also
0: giving people a sense of camaraderie and community, too, at the same time, given that people are so separated and they're not at work where they may normally be. They are stuck at home. Some people live alone, obviously, and so they're really not seeing people. And so thinking about creative ways to give people a a sense of a sense of what it would be like to have presence. Gary, go ahead.
2: I'm not an expert in that field, but it does seem to me that we have plenty of models in gospels, but we have plenty of models in the early church. First of all, in our community, the church was known as a group of people who loved one another. That was a characteristic feature. See how they love one another. It's even quoted in the in the New Testament. And in any church that we're belonging to, it seems to me, we find people who need our care. And that to me, would be the first place we would look. The second would be in our neighbors or people that we know or a particular need that we read about in the the newspaper. I think there's plenty of need, and uh, I don't think we have to spend very long in looking for it. I realize that different personalities have different callings and that some people aren't able to do that. But it does seem to me that wherever there's human need, we can find a place to work.
0: Well, thank you so much for the really fascinating historical discussion. I know I did not necessarily understand just the depth of the relationship between the healthcare systems that we have now and the Christian history behind it. So I'm grateful that you were able to share that with us. As Tim mentioned, we do have a link that I'll throw in the show notes where you can find all of our coronavirus coverage. And I think there are some really practical tips as well as other things just to get people to reflect on what's happening and maybe some of the questions that they might be wrestling with. We have discussions that I think are just designed to, yeah, hopefully help people think more like a Christian through those things. People can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. We ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy recently. Tim, I hope that you have a response.
1: You always come to me first. You know, Um, I'll, I'll say something. So I usually refer to my family when it comes to precious moments. Maybe I, I think of those figurines, you know, called precious moments, and it uh makes me think of family. But I think today I'll, I'll talk about work, and I'll talk about the fact that I think we're really blessed, you and I, Morgan, and all the members of the team, in a time like this when the church needs encouragement, needs courage, needs wisdom, and and just needs a a sort of central watering hole, a a gathering place, a place to talk about how we process all of these things together. I, I think we're really blessed to work at a place that can offer those things, that has been built up over decades of work from faithful men and women that we now get to be a part of in this historic moment, in this exceptionally difficult and trying moment to strive to to serve the church, to help the church be the church, to help the church endure and persevere and be a blessing in the midst of all these challenges, I think is really remarkable. It is, it is a deeply felt joy. It's not a, a sort of lighthearted joy, but just a sense that we're really blessed to be able to be in this moment at this time, strive to do something good in the midst of it.
0: Where can people find you outside of this?
1: Well, they can find me at Tim Dalrymple underscore
2: on Twitter. That's great. Gary? I'll just give a a brief story that I came across recently. My wife was from a Mennonite background, Germans who had settled in the Ukraine in the history of the family, which my daughter has written. She tells the story of my mother-in-law during a cholera plague in the, I don't know, it would have been In the 1920s or before, cholera had spread and and the mortality rate was very high in the area of the Mennonite villages. There was an uncle of hers who was, it was known that he was dying and he was by himself in a house and crying out for somebody to bring him water and nobody would go in because they knew they would contract it. My mother-in-law was a 10-year-old girl and she just felt this strong feeling that God called her to bring him water. So she got some water and she went inside and her and her mother didn't even prevent her from doing so, but she went in, brought that water to her uncle, and the next day he died. And I've often thought of the faith 10-year-old girl who overcomes the fear of the entire community who can't bring a glass of water to a man who's dying, but she felt that Jesus had specifically called her to do that.
0: Mm. Thank you for sharing that story. It sounds like there's some interesting history being done or being told in your family right now.
2: I think so, yes.
0: So where can people find you, Gary? Do you have a book or two that you want to point people to? Oh,
2: quite a few books. I wrote a book on medicine and healthcare in early Christianity, which I discuss many of these themes. I also have several books on this subject, another on medicine and religion, a historical account. Yes, it's a fascinating What are they called? Your books? Sorry? What are your books called? Medicine and Healthcare and Early Christianity and Medicine and Religion, A Historical Introduction. Find them all on Amazon.
0: All right. My precious moment. Well, I thought it was interesting what Tim was saying about work. It is both the responsibility, but also a source of... Deep satisfaction, I think, that we can feel like we can make resources to connect people, inspire people. Tib was talking about the stuff that I do, managing CT social media accounts. I would say, to some extent, entertain people, <laughs> which...
1: Yeah, people are stuck at home and, and they need things to do and they... They can share their ideas and yes. we can be a community.
0: I actually really like entertaining people. So that part of my job has been very satisfying because I know that we're going to get a lot of engagement on social media over the next couple of weeks and thinking of ways to give people a little bit more of an online sense of camaraderie and community is to me really invigorating in my work. And the other thing that I wanted to flag too is that we are very fortunate that so many of us can work from home. And I've just thought about all the infrastructure that we've built in our company over the past couple of years to make that possible. From what it seems like so far, it seems like it's been a pretty smooth process for that to happen for people. And I know that working from home to me was always like a nice perk for my job. And now it's become obviously a deep source of just something I do not have to worry about, something I can count on. And I'm just truly, truly grateful that we have all of these options, even if I'm coming into the studio today to record this podcast. (laughs) But for all of us and my my coworkers included, I know that we're extremely grateful about that. All right. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That's it for us this week. Thank you everyone who listened to this episode of Quick to Listen. If you want to support Christianity Today, our ministry, you can do that by going to morect.com slash podcasts. We know that you guys continue to give, and we are extremely grateful for all of you who have been generous with Christianity Today. If you would like to rate and review the show, I just went through and was reading our most recent ratings. Some of you guys have left feedback there. Thank you so much for doing so. You can offer this feedback by going to Quick to Listen on on apple podcasts and that's the best way to rate and review things but we're also available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts this podcast is produced by myself and matt linder the transcript is done by boon me ashola and the music is by sweeps we will see you all next week bye
2: This episode is brought to you by the Wheaton College
1: Graduate School. Respected and represented the world over, our more than 20 degrees and certificates at the Wheaton College Graduate School will inspire, challenge, and equip you to be a servant scholar for Christ and His kingdom. Learn more at wheaton.edu qtl.